This episode of Doing Your Business is brought to you by Instapaper. You know when you're sitting at your desk trying to get work done and someone emails you an article that you want to read later? Instapaper lets you save it to read later on the web or on your mobile phone. It even works in the subway. The premium version lets you turn articles into a playlist that it will then read to you so you can listen while you're walking or driving. I love this app. I use it every single day, and it's also my first paid podcast advertisement. So if you text me at 646-779-1234 with the word READ, R-E-A-D, I will send you a link to the app, and they're giving a free month of Instapaper premium to the first 50 people who text me. It's normally $3 a month. So if you send me a text, you will be supporting the podcast, you'll be reading more, you'll get a free $3 worth of Instapaper premium. It's a win, 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 win. Just text me the word READ, R-E-A-D, to 646 646- Seven seven nine one two three four. All right, let's go. Welcome to Doing Your Business with Matt Hartman, a podcast where we talk with founders of profitable businesses. Today, we're talking with Rini Kozlov, co-founder of KAI a company that runs clinical trials. Unlike lots of the companies that you read about in the news, Rini ran this business for 28 years before selling it three years ago. She's going to tell us how she started it, including getting NIH as her first customer, what it's like to grow to 100 people, and she talks in detail about selling the company, which is really interesting. Full disclosure, Rini is my second cousin once removed. I am not entirely sure exactly what that means, but she's known me since I was born. Let's listen. So, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about what KAI is? Does it stand for something? Well, it used to stand for the two K's in the founders, myself, Rini Kasloff, my business partner, Selma Kunitz. Both started with a K, Associates Incorporated, KAI. After some years, it just became KAI, and we dropped any reference to our name. Did you ever think that it was going to be a 90-person company? <laughs> Did you set out picturing that, like we're going to build this? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There were times when we thought um, we shouldn't get bigger than 25. We couldn't handle it. Um, but the best, the best professional day of my life was when we hit 50, and we had to hire an HR person. That was a wonderful day because that took a lot of burden off of us to have this person who handled any kind of employee issue and hiring and firing and everything else. So that was a very big day. But we did ultimately make a decision not to go over 100. Why was that? We liked the idea of being small and being able to have the kind of culture that we did. We thought we would lose the culture if we got bigger than 100. think that's very arbitrary but it, it was what we decided and we like the idea of having young people for whom the opportunity to grow up into the business and into the different areas of the business because now we were able to people really had <laughs> specific roles as opposed to everybody doing everything and so we thought that was a manageable number and 90 was wonderful it was a great number you started this company 28 years before you sold it. 30 years ago now? 31. 31 years ago now. What were the reasons that you started it? Um, so, 
Uh, I was working part-time at NIH. I was a researcher at NIH, and I worked for a woman um, who had been a full-time NIH employee. And we worked together for about seven years. And she said to me one day, as we were both finishing our doctorate degrees, I want to start a, I'm going to start a business. Want to join me? Business. I don't know anything about business. She said, well, neither do I. But I think, I think there's a niche here, and I think we can fill it. So we had both been uh, working in clinical research. Clinical research was in its infancy in many respects. People had been doing research but had not necessarily been accountable for the details and the outcomes and could not necessarily replicate what they had done. And so it was a time when the structure of clinical research was firmed up and NIH, National Institutes of Health, was less serious about that than the Food and Drug Administration. And so the two were very, very different and had very different goals. Uh, NIH wanted to collect all the information they could possibly collect uh, in doing a study. The pharmaceutical company just wanted to get that drug approved. Collect as little information as you possibly could and get the drug approved. The Rules and regulations for each of them were very different. We had worked in the NIH world. The FDA world was still evolving. And we were at the right place at the right time. Um, AIDS had just been introduced into our world. Um, Pharma did not want to take the responsibility for this rare disease that that nobody understood, that would cost billions of dollars in, in research and development, um, and nobody would pay for it, and it wasn't going to be funded. So they said, we're not going to take the responsibility. NIH said, we'll partner. Now the two worlds had to come together. The stringency of the FDA regulations now had to be imparted to NIH. And while we didn't know very much about FDA, we knew a lot about NIH, and those two worlds came together, the timing was serendipitous. So it was a little bit on the job training with the FDA, but we knew the NIH world and we could bring the two together. So you hadn't you weren't sitting back and saying, gosh, look at these things intersecting. We should go do that. You were saying we have this thing we want to do. Yeah. And it ha- and in a way it was incidental. You would have started it regardless of whether That's they That's correct. That's correct. Yes. And we we left NIH with one client, and it wasn't even a client who was doing a clinical trial. It was a client who was setting up a healthcare system and needed some expertise, and we were going to help them do that. Um, But within probably the year, these two worlds started to collide, and we said, aha, we are in the right place at the right time. So your first customer was really almost like a consulting It was a bank. Yeah, it was a bank. Right. And they were setting up a, a health care program for their employees, and they needed some help. And so they hired the two of you and paid as a yeah. consulting project, kind yes, of? absolutely. And, and it was really a data management project, to be fair. It was data management, very little clinical, and, um, yeah, some organizational development. Those were the two pieces. So it wasn't even clinical trial work that came about a year later. Well, that's interesting because a lot of the way you were describing the clinical trial work in a way is about data management also. Yes, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Just that kind of, grew out of the that grew out of particularly my business partner's expertise and background in data management. So you start this you start this company together. Mm-hmm. You have your first cost, client, right? And then you now see this opportunity to to do clinical right. trials mm-hmm. and to run them. Who is the first customer? Maybe not the name of them, but NIH was our NIH first was customer. the first one. Yeah, NIH was our first customer. We came out of the Neurology Institute. And they were our first cl- customer, client, um, for a small project. And the process, you know, for getting NIH projects is competitive. And you must submit a proposal and be vetted. And it is a very long process. We were designated as a small business. At the time, a small business had to net under $8 million, which was not a problem. Uh, we were well under $8 million. There was a special designation for what were called personal services contracts, and they were $25,000, and those were our first contracts. And once we kind of proved that we could do the work, then we competed under the small business um, heading and won three contracts in one year. And did you hire people once you had won the contracts, or did you hire them before? So with the personal services contracts, it was just the two of us. And then we hired a, a, an admin assistant, and we thought we were really hot stuff. And then in order to be credible for the other small business, we had to have a few people on deck to submit the proposals. So they were people that we knew we could hire when we won, and that's what we did. It's much more difficult to do that now. You need to have The competition is much fiercer now, so you must have... Um, real people on hand when you submit a proposal. So we started a a business that really didn't have a very firm definition at the time. But what we do is run clinical trials for new drugs and devices for both the pharmaceutical industry and the biotech industry and for the federal government, either the National Institutes of Health, Food and Drug Administration, the CDC, or any other agency that wants to run studies that have to do with drugs or devices. Is that like when they are first testing out these drugs or devices in clinical trial, or is it later on to get data for for marketing purposes? All of those things. So a drug comes out of the laboratory, and the very first kinds of tests in humans are phase one tests. There are four phases for drug development. So phase one tests are just to find out if the drug is going to kill anybody. And if it doesn't kill anybody, and it's tested in really very few subjects, they have a fairly good idea that it's not going to kill anybody. Then the FDA gives permission for them to move on to the second phase. In the second phase, you want to find out with a larger number of patient subjects um, whether the drug is safe. And also to figure out what the dose is, what the right dose is, because it's really important to understand how high the dose can be without causing side effects, and how low the dose can be and still be efficacious. So that's the, the goal of the phase two studies, and those are about um, two to 300 subjects. Then once the FDA says, okay, you've done that job, you move on to phase three, and in phase three, there are thousands of subjects in a study. And this is the randomized controlled clinical trial where some people get the drug and some people get either a placebo or the standard of care. Once you've gone through that phase, the next phase is approval. And after that, 
some drugs require post-marketing studies because now you're dealing with tens of thousands of people, maybe a million doses or more of the drug. Now you want to make sure that it really is safe and that it really does work in a very broad range of people under uncontrolled situations. So that's what we do. So we set all, up all, all four phases all four of that. Phases. So you at set- different times, obviously, and for different companies. So a company, a small pharmaceutical company, may come to us at phase one and phase two, successfully complete those phases, and then sell the drug to big pharma, because doing those large-scale clinical trials is extraordinarily expensive. And there's a very small percentage of drugs that get out of the lab that eventually make it to market. So somebody has to be able to afford these very expensive trials. And it's not usually the small startup pharma and biotech companies. So they'll come to you sometimes for the first couple of phases, and then maybe they sell the company, maybe they raise more money to be able to do the later drug tests. So I would have assumed, I don't know why, but I would have assumed that the, those giant pharmaceutical companies do it themselves. Is that... So that used to be the model. But the kind of people who need to run clinical trials are very um, expensive. They're highly skilled. They're well-trained. And it doesn't make sense to keep people in-house unless you have a very strong pipeline of drugs. So it was always the case that big pharma did all of their work in-house and didn't contract out to a clinical research organization, which, by the way, is what KI is, is um, what domain KI is in. So now I think the trend is to do, depending on the pharma, if they have a very strong pipeline, they will um, have some staff in-house and contract out as well. Can't have people who are being paid that kind of money sitting around doing nothing. So you have to have a certain number of drugs that you're constantly testing in order to make it right. worthwhile, or you outsource it to a company right. that can use have those people always use Right. A lot of the big pharma um, have a preferred provider list, and um, there's a very uh, intense vetting process to get on that list. And then once you're on the list, then you might compete um, when there's a drug that needs to be tested. So they might have, I don't know, 10 preferred providers, choose three or four of them and say, um, um, give us a proposal and a bid for doing whatever the scope of work is. So you compete among a smaller group um, that's been pre-vetted for competence. These <clears throat> pharmaceutical companies, that sounds almost like the quintessential big business. Yeah. How do you? How did you sell to them when it was just either the two of you or when you were first started, were you starting out selling to them or did you kind of work your way up to them? We didn't sell to them. And for the most part, those were not our clients. Um, our clients, um, historically, and, and even as we moved forward and grew uh, to about 90 people, um, our clients were small to mid-sized uh, pharma and biotech. That was the right niche. When they got to be big pharma, they wanted big CROs. They wanted big clinical research organizations. And there are about five of them, I guess, now that have, you know, maybe 2,500 employees. Um, and so there's always been um, a desire for Big Pharma to match size to size. 
So most of our work has been with small to mid-size, up through phase two, and then in phase four, big pharma. Phase three almost always goes to the bigger CROs. So we didn't sell to them, mostly. There's some word of mouth that went on, and that's how we got some business, but mostly it was the small to mid-size. If we were to go into your office, I have gone into your office. Yes, you have. And it's not a bunch of people walking around in white lab coats. Oh, not at all. Um, what? What, what is it like? What's it, who are the people who you're hiring? What are they doing? And what does it mean to run a clinical trial if there's not a bunch of people and rats and things? Well, so it's very important to understand that not only don't we have lab coats, but we don't have patients. We don't have subjects in our, <clears throat> in our office, and we never interact directly with patients or subjects in a trial. So we're sort of uh, the third party. We're removed from that. So what our job is, and in order to understand what staff we need, I need to explain to you a little bit about what our role is. So a pharmaceutical company will come to us, and sometimes they've already got the protocol that's been approved by the FDA that says this is what needs to be done and this is how it needs to be done. Sometimes they just come to us with an idea. This is what we think we want to do. Can you write a protocol? So that would be the first task. For that, you need scientists. You need people with a clinical background. You need people who understand how a clinical trial has to be uh, designed and what the FDA will accept. Sometimes, so the next step, once we've got an approved protocol, we have to figure out who's going to actually find those patients and how are we going to work with those clinical sites to find those patients. So clinical sites can either be academic centers, hospitals, universities, or they can be private practices in the community. Depends on what the drug is, what the disease is, how intense the study has to be. So then we have people who know how to reach out and market, if you will, to people who have experience in doing research and um, identifying those kinds of sites and then contracting with them. So now we have to have business people, finance people, who understand um, how a contract is written and what the considerations need to be. Then we have to set up the system to receive the clinical data that's going to come out of these studies. So we need a whole data management team. Um, The data management team is key to the success of a study, um, most studies now are um, not paperless, but very dependent on a clinical data management system. So you need programmers, you need analysts, you need people who, again, understand the clinical trial, but also understand the data management considerations. You need regulatory expertise, because no matter what else you do, you have to interact with the FDA, and it has to meet their requirements. Um, what else do we need? We need trainers. Got to train the clinical sites on how to actually implement the study. And the clinical sites, so they're, they're not places you control. You've, you've found the clinical sites to do the particular t- research that you've been hired Correct. to make Correct. happen. Correct. So what we've done over the years is develop um, a database of sites in different geographic areas because it's really important to have a a broad um, geographic and um, uh, population diversity. Um, 
<clears throat> so we have a database of that and the disease areas that they can handle. So some sites are experts in the neurosciences, some are in the, the GI diseases, but each has its own specialty, so we need to be able to identify those. Um, and then once we do, then it's um, a marketing pitch. Do you want to do the study? Here's what's in it for you. Here are the publications you might get out of it. Here's how it will work. The third, or not the third, but the uh, final group of people that are really, really important for study are smart young people. Um, and so our research assistants and research associates are generally smart and young, um, but they come from every discipline. Some come from psychology, from biology, from math, um, certainly all of the computer science uh, young people that we've hired have been very successful. So um, it's an opportunity to be in a, a small business that gives you exposure to lots of different aspects um, of the work um, and allows a lot of growth um, professionally for young people. What do you think the things are that are driving those types of young people to into this field? Is it an interest in get, helping new amazing drugs get to market? Is it an interest in management of a pretty complex set of things that are going on? What do you, what do you, what do you think it is? Honestly, um, I think many people come into it not having any idea of what they will be doing. Um, sounds cool. I'd like to figure out how to develop drugs or um, I don't like working in a lab um, but this sounds sort of clinical medical so maybe I'll like this and very honestly um, in the beginning there's a fair uh, fairly high dropout rate that's not the right word for employees but um, a fairly high dropout rate because it isn't the right fit um, the data management the computer science people they're pretty um, sure that they can do this work and, and they generally like it. Um, some go on to medical school or go on to get um, PhDs in something and so we lose them after training them for two or three or four years. Um, but I, I, rare, I rarely have hired somebody who said, I, this is something I always wanted to do. That's interesting. It's also interesting that out of the two groups, the people who are the computer science focused, moving more towards the clinical medical side, mm -hmm. um, end up seemingly to be really happy. Yeah. Consistently. Right. It's very challenging. It's very challenging because there are so many moving parts and there are so many considerations. Um, it's not just the straight programming. It's understanding the FDA, it's understanding clinical practice, it's understanding the clinical trial piece, and also being a really good programmer. This concludes part one of my interview with Rini. In the next episode, which I am releasing simultaneously with this one, so you should be able to just open this one up right now, we talk about repeat customers, and then we talk in depth about the acquisition, which is fascinating. I hope you can stick around for it.